Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerardesi. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing No One Will Save You, which Guillermo del Toro apparently thought was great. I don't know. That's just the first place my brain went. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, the you know the GDT endorsement is much coveted, but you know it's like well, uh, I, I almost likened him to Stephen King, who tweets things to that effect with some regularity. But I think Stephen King is easier to please. I think so uh, too. <laughs> yeah, I just remembered. I mean, this movie was already on my radar for any number of reasons, not least of which I'm always scouring for future episodes of the podcast, but I did see GDT's tweet about it, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to have to stand up and take notice here. Ultimately, I don't think I liked it quite as much as Guillermo did, or perhaps as much as my co-host did, but I think I liked it well enough. I didn't like it particularly. I mean, I liked some things in theory more so than in practice. I said, just so I don't feel completely like a broken record, I said the same thing about Night Swim over and over and over umpteen hundreds of times. Uh, This is a much better movie than Night Swim. It's got some ostentatious creative choices in it. The central gimmick, and I was curious to know if you knew this going in, because I had gotten wind of it. And I wasn't sure that you had. It's all but entirely silent in the sense that there's next dialogue to no free dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. And this has consequences for the movie that are sort of interesting to reckon with. But I think ultimately it is gimmicky and compromises the movie more so than I mean, in, in theory, it's a selling point and makes it stand out from the pack. But in practice, or I'm going to be using <laughs> <laughs> a lot like i used it a lot in our, our last outing together in practice I, I think it holds the movie back it didn't bother me in execution too terribly much the absence or almost complete absence of dialogue there are one or two scenes where it feels a little much it feels like the film is straining to yes. squeeze itself into those parameters yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always feel like a contrivance when she's on screen, you know, when she goes into town, for example. Well, I have a I have a lot of issues with her brief stint in civilization. She spends most of the movie by herself. No one will save you, you know, go figure. It's yes. her against this alien menace that's trying to do god knows what. But I don't know. I think that it's 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 this sort of persistent low-key hum throughout the movie where it's like always a little bit conspicuous and then periodically will become impossible to ignore and will feel like a like a strain as you put it or like a like a contrivance when she's around other human beings in situations where people would usually start flapping their lips just no one does right yeah again that's not my biggest issue with the movie my biggest issue is with how it ends, which I sort of alluded to briefly talking to Matt before we started recording. But yeah, I mean, it it is periodically just a little bit irritating. It would have been much more so if Bryn, as the character's lead character's name, was in a position of trying to cooperate with another person in order to survive, and that is never the case. Right. So 
at least we didn't have that. But yeah, I mean, again, it also does occasionally feel very conspicuous. So the basic premise, and Matt kind of already put this out there, but Bryn, our lead character, is menaced by aliens. She lives out in this, I would call it a farmhouse, but it doesn't appear to be surrounded by, you know, a farm. But it's, No, it's, it's just large and kind of old-timey and Rustic isolated. looking, and yeah, right. out, out in some woods. And she is not only physically isolated, but socially isolated. There are a smattering of hints that the townsfolk either regard her with apprehension or scorn or outright disgust and this sort of ramps up the isolation and the tension one feels when one is being harassed by literal aliens yeah i mean she's she's very much a pariah and as far as that goes i was kind of grateful for the central gimmick gimmicky as it is just because if it were not for that self-imposed handicap on the part of the filmmakers we would have I'm sure, gotten scenes of her running into town going like, no, listen, you gotta believe me. That fucking invasion of the body snatchers, you know, your next thing, which has never, ever been as good as it was in 1956. Right. <laughs> you know, or, or her begging and pleading with people to listen to her, and of course no one does because she's a pariah, and we're spared all of that, which is a mercy. Yes. The, the town stuff is still rather odd, I found, but we'll get to that in due course. Yes. So we open with the eeriest and most off-putting and most alien sight in the whole movie, which is the logo for 20th Century Studios. <laughs> it really yeah, it will, was, it will never look right, ever. It genuinely unnerves me in a way that few <laughs> horror movies do, in which this one certainly did not. So we're introduced to Bryn, and she lives in the aforementioned big house in the middle of nowhere she has a little quaint model village on a table in one of the rooms that she seems to be maintaining and this is sort of de rigueur for horror movies at this point like tony collette in hereditary being really into the you know the miniatures <laughs> right uh the last time we messaged each other i said that you know there was a horror movie on my radar apparently it was on yours as well and i was trying to remember the name of it and i was like yeah you know the, it's the one about the stop motion animator who's moving her, losing her marbles. The name escapes me. Uh, turns out it's called Stop Motion. <laughs> I kind of, <laughs> right. I, I remembered it being something artier, but that's very utilitarian if nothing else. And you would think hard to forget, although I did forget it. So that's going to be more of the same. Although I am looking forward to that one. Mm. Anyway. I hoped, as much as I'm kind of bashing the trope now, I hoped that the movie would have a little more fun with the model village. And initially, it appears that it's going to. There's a scene early on during the close encounter hijinks where the whole house is kind of poltergeisting, fridge doors slamming open and shut and lights flickering on and off. And after the rest of the house quiets down, the model village persists in acting spooky with flickering lights and what have you but then very quickly very shortly thereafter the table it's on gets flipped over and the whole town is you know smashed to smithereens which is sort of unfortunate um, well even even before that she unplugs right the power to the table <laughs> which apparently stops the lights so 
before any of those close encounter hijinks get underway, we see this character go into town and what a character she is. Just in the time that we see her, you know, just getting ready and going out on the town, the performance is visibly right off the bat the performance of someone who knows that they're not going to be doing any talking in this movie that no one is going to say boo to them it is i don't know this sounds idiotic but it's, it's like kind of showy in an understated way it's very like anytime anything happens she just turns into lillian gish you know like <laughs> there's a, a lot of kind of cranked up facial expressions you know a lot of cocked eyebrows and body language that looks sort of disney princess almost you know sort of just unnaturally overdrawn like she goes into town and she sees two people uh, an older couple i think you only see them for a second and i she, if i'm right she encounters them later in the movie in a slightly more harrowing fashion but it, right off the bat she, we know that she's trying to avoid them because she ducks behind a parked car and there's a shot of her peering over the hood at them looking like a frightened fawn you know just <laughs> So it's it's this kind of odd, like, pantomime kind of performance, and it signals the gimmick right away. Because otherwise we might have made it, you know, just given the nature of the premise that it's mostly her flying solo, we might have made it to the 20-minute, half-hour mark, and then gone like, oh, no one said anything. That's kind of odd. But, like, right away. And granted, I knew the gimmick going in, and, and so I was maybe biased to an extent, but I, I think that her performance is really laying on the horn in that regard. It's not all bad, but it is, the word I used before was conspicuous. So let's see. We see her writing in her journal. Most of it is out of frame, but we see her write the sentence, I don't think I'll ever forgive myself. So put a pin in that. We've got some trauma in our rear view mirror that we're yeah. still processing. A whole journal might as well just say like like a like a all work no play makes Jack a you know, dull trauma 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 tra you know just <laughs> the, the, right. the whole thing is just a, again laying on the horn a little bit. So alien stuff starts to occur. There's just one to begin with, and like I mentioned, stuff is poltergeisting. There's a slightly tense kind of sub Shyamalan signs moment where she is huddled beside the fridge the door swings open to kind of trap her where she is and an alien slowly approaches the other side of the fridge door and takes its long spindly fingers and starts to kind of peer over the top of the door and that's all fine this is all competently executed and I kept wondering how are they going to sustain this for a whole movie? Because I thought wrongly, given the decision to not have her say anything, that it was going to be a one survive night. a survive the night kind of movie that would play out more or less in real time. That proves to not be the case. And that was sort of the moment where the movie faltered and never quite got a spring in its step again from that point on for me. Yeah, so the first night culminates with... Bryn almost accidentally getting the drop on this single alien and burying the steeple of like the the model church or something in the alien's brain right and she has very little agency when this happens because she is being telepathically ragdolled around the alien is kind of inspecting her and she just kind of lifts her arm and and yeah buries the business end of a model village steeple into its brain yeah, and it, it twitches for a long time. 
Yeah, and I, I'm of two minds about the aliens. I kind of like how conventional they look for the most part. You know, they've got the the gray skin, they're the spindly little bodies and the big swollen heads, the bulbous eyes. But a little bit of care has been taken to make them move in a creepy manner. Some of them have too many joints. I mean, when in doubt, just give it an extra joint and you're good to go. (laughs) That's the number one maxim of horror movie creature design, I guess. But but more than anything, the sounds they make are to be commended, I think. There's a bit early on where one is pursuing her upstairs and we hear it but don't see it. And it sounds like a giggling warthog. It's very odd. It's this guttural kind of like, <laughs> I don't, I, mean, I can't even <laughs> right. approximate it, but it's, uh, th- that, that was fairly spooky. There's two things I like about the aliens physically. One is they have wildly varying bodily structures. Yes. I, I mean, they all follow the same basic principle, like their heads are the same, although some of them look a little bit more angular than others. But they're, you know, all all the bulbous heads, black eyes, grayish skin, like you were saying. But then their bodies are different. I mean, you've you've got the, the first one we see that's just kind of a more conventional, long and gangly. And then the next one we see is this weird little homunculus that's got these stubby little legs. And then, like, Freddy Krueger alleyway arms yeah <laughs> they really all do look like the, the 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 same base creature that has been fucked with like taffy in some in like in like the character creator screen of a video game you know it's like it's like the opening of super mario 64 where his face has that weird elasticity it's like i'm gonna grab the arms and just pull them as far as they'll go <laughs> except unlike mario they didn't snap back into place yeah no they don't spring back into place they uh they stay put and then yeah. it has to find a way to perambulate like that you know it's it's like spore basically right so yeah and there's there's one body type in particular that i don't want to put the cart before the horse on that one but that one is also pretty good the other thing yeah. That was, that was all one thing, if that wasn't clear. The other thing uh-huh. I like about these, or at least the initial alien, that for some reason just really rubbed me the wrong way, but, you know, in the right way. It, it, it spooked me for whatever reason. The fucking gnarly, like, finger feet that the finger, it has. Yeah, it has these horrible tubular toes. Its feet look, uh, look like perfectly symmetrical, first of all, which is, which is odd. You know, it's got, like, four or five tubes that kind of sucker onto the ground so it can move about more or less soundlessly. It almost looks like it should produce like Squidward footsteps sound effects when it walks that kind of wet, like point, point, point. But it, you know, it's, it's, it is the shot. She's hiding under the bed. That's how we get such a good look at them. And that is my favorite single detail of the creature design without a doubt. Those feet are fucked up and horrible. Yeah. So that was definitely a point in its favor for me. So she kills the thing, sort of without meaning to, and I figured, again, wrongly, that at this point it would be revealed that she had killed, you know, a juvenile uh, that Uh. was, like, joyriding or something, and that this relatively low-stakes first encounter, or, you know, encounter of the third kind, would then spiral out of control and she'd have, like, a grieving mother hell-bent on her destruction. Uh, Not the case. 
Smash cut to the following morning. She has been sitting in a corner, catatonic, all night long. She then goes into town, and this is where seams start to show in terms of the silence gimmick. She goes to the police station, is about to start talking, and then sees the parents of a girl that she was acquainted with when she was younger. This is semi-established by this point. We see a picture of the two of them as kids, and the picture is captioned like BFFs. Yeah, not not just acquaintances. I mean, it, it, we get the sense that that caption of BFFs is not thrown around willy-nilly, like this was her best friend when she was a child. Yeah, and, then and this, this photo something is juxtaposed, juxtaposed with her journaling, so she bears some measure of responsibility for whatever happened to this other kid is uh, not around anymore. And she's about to start talking, is stopped dead in her tracks when she sees this older couple. The woman spits on her and then leaves in a huff. The gentleman lingers in the shot and in the police station for a good long while, saying nothing, and then he too departs. (laughs) And to be clear, the man, the husband, father, whatever, is also the chief of police. Right. He's wearing a cop's uniform. We already have seen what the dead girl's name is. It's Maud Collins. And we saw on the door going into the police station, Chief Jim Collins or whatever. And then just laying it on as thickly as possible, there is a close-up of a name tag on his chest, Chief J. Collins or whatever. So a lot of this is done, as you've illustrated, a little inelegantly. However, movies like this are often saddled with very inelegant dialogue, too. You know, expository dialogue. So it's really not as bad as it could be. It's, you know, a little cumbersome, but it gets the job done. Yeah, no one is in the Amazon researching spiders with my mom right before she died. So... I figure we had to work in a Madam Web reference sometime. It's just too much in the zeitgeist. Yeah, a, a horror movie of a different kind. <laughs> so I, I figured, you know, him being the chief of police at all and having literally nothing to say to her when she's got spittle dripping down her cheek. Okay, so these doors have all slammed in her face. No one will save you. Does yes. what it says on the ten. However, immediately after this scene, it, 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 it would have been enough if she was just a social outcast, and that's why she was on her own. Uh, you know, she has you know, no recourse to the other townspeople, and to the PD in particular. Uh, however, she is then seen bussing home. I don't think she was bussing home. I think she was spur of the moment trying to take a bus out of town. I see. Okay, that makes more sense. Because it and... is definitely not like a cross-town bus not that no it's like it's like a greyhound right exactly it's got chair uh chairs like you know airplane seats yeah carpet chairs uh-huh and yeah in this scene we discover that there is a body snatchers thing going on because the mailman we saw her mailman early on he brings a package she sees him from a distance playing basketball with her package and brutalizing it, which is not cool, obviously. But maybe he hates her. (laughs) Maybe he hates her just like everyone else in town does. Or maybe he's just a dick in general. Who knows? Right. But anyway, on her way into town, 
before she gets to the police station, his postal truck is overturned. And then we see him at the back of the bus come up in the seat behind her and then menace her. And he's making all the same noises that the aliens are making. That Yeah. And then yeah. everyone else on the bus also starts warthogging and, you know, and clambering over the seats to try to get at her. Crucially, I don't think it's everyone. I think it's like one other person. And then everyone else on the bus also doesn't really do anything, but they're kind of like inching back like what what the fuck is going on which is oh a little too muted of a reaction when the mailman is literally spider crawling across the tops of the seats yeah i mean it's it's literally muted in the sense that it's like you sat on the remote by mistake because just none of them are fucking talking you know not so much as one like hey man what the fuck you know none of, it's a situation where any normal person would muster up some kind of a remark right if nothing else because it's easier you don't know what's going on if you witness that on a bus on a fucking greyhound it could be like a a canadian cannibal situation unfolding before your eyes you don't know so you don't want to physically intervene but then because you're not physically intervening it is then incumbent upon you to at least like yell out something just to like try to get some kind of you don't just sit there uh, or just shrink back so the gimmick, because everyone is just beholden to the gimmick, and that makes it sort of horribly conspicuous at that point. So she gets off the bus. So so just to put a, a bow on this real quick, not only is she isolated by virtue of whatever happened that made all of the townsfolk, and particularly the chief of police and his wife, hate her, she is also isolated by the fact that this alien thing is apparently a burgeoning full-scale invasion where people's bodies are being taken over by the aliens yeah well and she and the you know the 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 police the chief of police who hates her guts might be some of the few remaining outliers and that's who knows yeah the impression we get she's then shown running home and there's a storm of brewing there's these dark clouds overhead that are pretty clearly concealing ufos and it's it's does this sort of odd slow-mo thing and then she sees a crowd of people who from a distance look like they're all trying to take a group selfie they've got like one arm outstretched their 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 palms are towards the sky but save for that it's the exact posture of someone who's extending their arm as far as they can to try to cram everyone into the shot. Um, They're all frozen in that position, just looking up like fucking turkeys when it's raining, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so they've already been brain-jacked, quite obviously. And then the movie just kind of resumes survive the night mode and just kind of picks up where it left off almost and just resumes being the kind of movie that I assumed it would be from start to finish. So this whole episode in the middle is definitely the low point for me. Mm-hmm. So the second night she does battle with not one, not two, but three. And then I think eventually more than three aliens, but it's two off the bat. First, there's the one with the really fucked up dimensions where it's real stout. And then it's got the, you know, the stubby legs and the, uh, the slender man arms. Yeah. And I don't actually remember how she dispatches that one she stabs it with something yeah so there's multiple points in its half-assed pursuit of her where it like stops kind of like it's toying with her and stares at her for a while 
And then eventually, I think she retreats into a bathroom. It busts through the door, just sort of rips the door to shreds by degrees. Or maybe it's a laundry room. Anyway, there's a mop in there, and she's kind of pushing it away with the mop. It snaps off the head of the mop, and so she stabs it with the jagged remaining mop handle uh, through its shoulder, essentially, and then proceeds to brain it with the door of the cabinet that it is sort of pinned to. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. And then she, she climbs out the window. And out here is where we encounter not necessarily my favorite of the aliens in aggregate, but it did make a very strong initial impression on me. Yeah, the the reveal of its dimensions. It, it's very, oh, it's big! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think my precise reaction was something along the lines of, oh, fuck me. Yeah, it's it's like looming over the house. Yeah, um, well, and it's a little bit of a neat bait and switch, too, because we see it first in the background, out of focus, uh, and it's just like a pair of eyes and the top of the head killroying over, like, the top of <laughs> a shed or, or, or a barn or whatever the hell it is. And we figure it's like, okay, it's just one of these similarly sized aliens. Just it's kind of standing on the other side of the slanted roof. And we just see the top of its head. But then it comes from around and it's like a praying mantis that's like 20 feet tall or whatever. Just these enormous spindly legs, four of them. Like, oh, oh, it's big, (laughs) As, as you said. And this one's demise, I do remember, it chases her into her car and then can't extricate itself from the car and she sets fire to the car and the car explodes. And all of that is pretty well done. She's walking down a road afterward and let's see, or no, this, it's all a bit of a blur for me, almost like I'm trying to recount my own abduction. (laughs) It turns into kind of a lot of bright lights and general mayhem and confusion. She, I might be doing this out of sequence, but I don't think I am. She is pinned to the ceiling and then suspended in midair by this red tractor beam kind of thing coming from a flying saucer. And the the, the spacecraft, like the aliens themselves, are conventional almost to a fault. Although I like that they don't try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, mm-hmm. They're just very classic Saucers. UFOs. Right. And while she's suspended in midair, she is approached by another one of the aliens, and it opens its mouth and disgorges a spaghetti parasite. You know, just this <laughs> awful little leechy kind of thing with a bunch of tiny tentacles thrashing around. Comes out of the alien's mouth, goes into hers, and I think the intended takeaway here is supposed to be that this organism is the actual invasive alien species and the greys are just another species that it's colonized in its conquest of the universe so uh, but maybe not i don't know because the the life cycle of the thing gets awfully convoluted in the short time that we spend with it yeah i have some thoughts about that and we can get into that after the break but yeah it's not 100 percent clear what the uh, relationship is so just as the spaghetti parasite is going into her mouth. Bryn wakes up in her bed with a scream. It appears, oh, it was all a dream, sort of a deal. Not hard to sniff that out right away. I mean, 
that's just way too easy. Also, there's like half an hour left in the movie. Just there's there's no way that this is legit. Yeah. I think what I said to myself out loud was, I think you're in the Matrix. <laughs> you, you talked to yourself watching the movie more than she talked to herself, <laughs> experiencing its events firsthand, which is, you know, I, sort, that sort, is of, correct. Sort, sort of shows you the limitations of the approach that the filmmakers took, I think. Yeah. And, and my outbursts to myself did essentially prove true. After Bryn kind of walks through her house for a couple of minutes and appears to encounter a fully grown but out of focus version of her childhood Biffle. Yeah, her her dead friend. She says Maud, I think is the girl's name, which is a weirdly old fashioned name for a zoomer, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was old-fashioned. I mean, the, the in 1971, the grandma in Harold and Maude was named Maude. You know, it's like, it was old-fashioned in 1971. Then again, I think one of Apatow's daughters is named Maude, so I don't know, maybe no. it's making a comeback. But uh, anyway, she's... Probably an homage to that exact thing. <laughs> Perhaps. It, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um it says like uh, Maud, I'm sorry, and then she reaches her hand inside of her mouth, cuts back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Uh, right. She she rips the parasite out of her own mouth. She has successfully sniffed out the scam. Basically, the parasite was just showing her what it thought she wanted to see, so it would right. let her sort of brain jack her around as much as it liked. But apparently it has what it needed because it then, with a little help from the saucer flying overhead, shining some kind of light on it, it grows like a, like, like, like one of those toy dinosaurs that you'd like put in water as a kid. It just like, it, it turns into a, it's like a grow your own doppelganger. And it, and it, <laughs> it, it, it turns into another Bryn. And then the two of them have to duke it out. And I, I kind of liked this, although, again, more so in theory, in practice, the emotionality wasn't really there for me. But she kills the doppelganger and then kind of, like, consoles it as it's dying in, in, in a wide shot. They're surrounded by trees. And I feel like maybe that tells you a little something about the kind of character that you're dealing with here. And it also, I think, hints in a not-too-obnoxious or obvious fashion to the root trauma here and what became of Maude. The fact that she's being tender even with this alien homunculus <laughs> you know, means, you know it, it makes it very apparent that she feels like she has to atone for something and some violent act in specific. Yeah. Well, and we pretty soon get to see exactly what that violent act was because after Bryn has successfully killed her doppelganger and is sort of hobbling down the road. She gets hit with yet another tractor beam, and she gets the full abduction treatment this time. She gets yeah. taken up to the craft, where she kind of goes through a fragmented flashback sequence, the climax of which is her younger self getting into a shoving match with this dead friend of hers. The friend shoves her to the ground, at which point she picks up a nearby rock and brains 
her friend with it in a snap moment of rage quickly realizes what she's done at that point of course it is too late she has killed her and i had been wondering throughout like okay what could she have done at as young an age as it would have had to be to make the parents of her dead friend hate her enough still to spit in her face right like and, and yet and yet she is not and yet she is not like in an institution for life Right, it's a very fine line there. It's a, you got to thread that needle very carefully. It can't be a run-of-the-mill drowning where they were just unsupervised or something, but it also can't be something that would get her in a padded room. And I think that the movie does thread that needle. It's just a, a, a split-second bad decision that is not likely to happen again you know it doesn't mean that she's a that she's a homicidal maniac although the ending which is basically upon us at this point is kind of disquieting and kind of reveals that maybe there has been kind of a sinister side to her all along so first something befuddling happens the aliens confer with one another after they've psychically dug watched around. her head movies yeah right and and they're sort of just like warbling at each other and and they decide to put her back on terra firma no worse for the wear obviously it's not clear why because they're speaking in unsubtitled venusian or whatever (laughs) (laughs) but it's almost like they put the kid gloves on because it's like oh you know she's had enough (laughs) right but it's like I, i i don't know i never i never brained my best friend with a rock but like a lot of people have if you were invading a whole planet there are a lot of people who you would have to spare if there's this litmus test where i i, I, I don't know i basically I, I have to throw my hands up into feet i don't know what their criteria are yeah or what's happening there but it seems like they take pity on her which is counter to the idea that they're all just being piloted by these pitiless like spaghetti parasites i don't know maybe the maybe the spaghetti parasites have tender hearts deep down i don't know well it can't be that deep the parasites aren't that big (laughs) but this is this is really the crux of what i disliked about the ending uh Uh, it's just to just to be concrete about what happens through the rest so er early on in the film there's a scene where Bryn is like trying to teach herself this series of dance steps. She's gotten them in the mail or something. There's like a bunch of literal like footprint shaped decals that she puts down on the ground in various spots. And basically it's a guide to teach her like, okay, she moves from here to here and this way and this way in this order. And, it, and, and, and her, her learning that way rather than pulling up like a YouTube tutorial is very mad then. You know, yes. it's like it's it's a very traditionalist kind of I don't know. I, I almost I will. No, I'm going to table that until after the break. But things I bring it up because things do get very pleasant, Ville, uh, well, very quickly. Well, yeah. And the, the song she's listening to when she's first trying to learn it, which is the same song that's playing during the closing scene, is very 50s Americana. Yeah. Zooby, zooby, zoo. <laughs> my friendly hometown sort of a thing. 
Yeah, the lyrics are actually very fitting. I wouldn't be surprised if the writer, director, whoever listened to the song, thought of like a creepy ending and then reverse engineered the wrote whole movie the whole from movie. that. Yeah, because right. the song is like, knock on any door, you'll always be greeted with a smile. Uh, and that's, you know, that's pod people talk. That's Stepford Wives. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't yeah. be able to knock on any door and always find a happy face on the other side. You know, people have problems. <laughs> right. So, yeah, the movie ends with Bryn basically making nice with all the pod people. Uh, you well, know, she, she goes over to her neighbor's house where she initially met the, like, selfie crowd. And they're all there gardening and whatever else. And, you know, they, like, smile and wave at her even while we can see the CG quivering under their their throat skin of the parasites. And then, yeah, the, the final scene is she, like, gets all dolled up and goes downtown and there's just a bunch of people dancing. And she's learned the dance and they're all smiling and happy and it ends with her sort of looking to the camera and smiling and then the camera cranes out or more likely drones out these days. And then we see, you know, all the all the UFOs still in the sky. It's like, well, right. yeah, okay, we knew the aliens were still here. You already showed us <laughs> the, the parasites right. still They're in people's necks. Out busying themselves, making a utopia for Bryn and Bryn alone. <laughs> that, well, the, and that's, that's the whole fucking thing. I don't dislike the idea that something inside of Bryn is fundamentally broken and so she feels more comfortable in this assortment of pod people than she does like trying to live out amongst normal human beings with right. control over their own lives that part of it works what doesn't work is the high concept part that is the premise of the whole film, namely the aliens part. Yeah, the aliens. Why are the aliens doing this? If she had hoodwinked the aliens and, in, you know, it had somehow been conveyed to us that she was passing for her pod counterpart and she had just slipped through the cracks and she was a human, you know, like, uh, like Veronica Cartwright at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78. Yeah. She's like one in a thousand, one in a million, who knows? She's like one of the last people in San Francisco, maybe on the planet. Or a slightly, well, okay, not slightly, somewhat less interesting, but still preferable to what was done option would have been she somehow ended up slipping back into what I called the Matrix earlier. Like, you know, once she's been taken up into the spacecraft and they're making play through her brain whatever the hell they want and they're all conferring maybe they just left her there and now she's dreaming her way through this weird 50s pastiche and she seems happy there even though she shouldn't be yeah right and then smash cut to her vegetable body still still suspended in the tractor beam on the mothership i mean that, you can't rule that out, I guess. I, I would not find that, that explanation very satisfying. I do find it very funny that she is happier with the pod people than she was among her own kind because the townspeople treated her so abominably. But what I can't get on board with is the aliens deliberately sparing her. If it had been just an, an oversight on the aliens' part, but she was thrilled. That's 
a great like twilight zone kind of subversive twist to go out on this stylistic swerve where it turns into a full-blown musical basically and she even breaks the fourth wall she looks right into the lens that stuff would still be hard for me to take but i might have allowed it were it not for the fact that you know the aliens decide to just catch and release (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Again, the best version of this ending is exactly like you say. It's a Body Snatchers 78, Veronica Cartwright slips under the radar and lives this sort of Except miserable existence. It. Except she's happy about it. That's fucked up in a cool way. Yeah. The scenario I described would be fairly hacky and not especially interesting but that would have still been better than this complete head-scratcher where uh, the the aliens have made a little Potemkin village just for Bryn. <laughs> well, Why? It, it, really, it really does play... It plays like an act of mercy. After the trauma flashback is over, there's an extended alien reaction shot, you know, shoulders up. And again, just if you haven't seen the movie, imagine a very standard Area 51-looking alien... And it looks for all the world like an Icarus tear is about to run down its, <laughs> its bony cheek. You know, like, yeah. you have you have moved me, human. It's, it's just like, it's, it's not really sappy because they don't fully commit to it. But there's a current of sap running under the surface <laughs> there. Yeah. I want to like the ending. The ending is sort of a curveball that I want to appreciate more than I do. But it's a rough landing. Um, so more thoughts on how they could have had a gentler descent and a gentler landing after the break I have a lot to say Hello listeners, it's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. And we're back. 
So I'd like to talk a little bit about, I guess for lack of a better phrase, the life cycle of these aliens and what the hell's going on with the parasite. Sure, we, can, we can play alien zoologist for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Channel our inner Attenborough. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I get tired of blowing the same sacred cows in every episode. I said that no movie has ever done the, like, they're here next, you know, why won't you listen to me thing better than Body Snatchers 56. No movie has done the alien life cycle thing better than Alien, obviously. It's just like, yeah, as far as I'm aware, the first movie that did it something like that, at least one where it was that elaborate, mm. and uh, it was just crystal clear what every stage entailed and it just it has just never been done better or even half as good no it hasn't on the one hand you've got the little gray men or oftentimes not so little at all sometimes the very large gray mantises yeah or sometimes half little half big and not in predictable <laughs> ways <laughs> right weird little homunculus and then you've got the giant germ cell <laughs> spaghetti parasites. And there are any number of readings you can put into this. Uh, one possibility is that the gray aliens were just some kind of potentially benevolent or at least neutral alien race out there. And then they got attacked by the parasites first before humans were and the parasites completely overran them and now all the gray aliens are their meat puppets or the other i guess major possibility and obviously there's any number of smaller permutations within this but the other possibility is that i guess either the spaghetti parasites are the core creature that just happened to design these meat puppets for themselves that look like little gray men, or there's some kind of symbiotic relationship, or this is two halves of the same species between the gray man bodies and the spaghetti parasites. And it's really not clear which it is. I feel weird saying it's not clear why it matters, because if it doesn't matter, why am I asking? But I don't know. It, it just... It seems a little bit unnecessarily complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think that at every turn, the filmmakers are asking themselves, how can we take this stock alien and make it scary? Some of it is sound design, just the, the weird noises they make. Some of it is extra joints, weird proportions. And then I think having played all those cards, they played what they hoped would be their trump card, which is the spaghetti monster that comes flying out of the mouth. And that's, I, I don't know, I just think that they overplayed their hand, that's all. They overthought it. It's the weirdest note, and they save it for last, and it's just sort of a bridge too far, I think. It raises too many questions, and isn't actually scary, just kind of confounding. Yeah, the idea of it giving you hallucinations that show you what you want to see is fun, but that lasts literally for all of, like, 15 seconds. It reminds me of an old Superman comic. Alan Moore wrote it, I think, Free Watchmen. It's called For the Man Who Has Everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Superman is momentarily bested 
by uh, an opponent, someone from his rogues gallery whose name escapes me, who, uh, it's Superman's birthday, and, you know, what do you get for the man who has everything? And he is given, like, an alien flower by one of his nemeses, and the flower latches onto his chest and puts him in this fantasy krypton that never blew up and you right, know, reunites sure. him with his parents, and it's a, a dream he doesn't want to wake up from. So Superman has been defeated, in effect, quite handily. And then I, Batman and Wonder Woman have to save the day. But it, that, th- that furnished, you know, a classic comic. Here, it's the exact same idea, from what I can tell, and they just, it, it, it's, uh, hello, goodbye, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> right. On the one hand, it seems like the parasites being in charge and meat puppeting the gray aliens around explanation is the correct one because the way the aliens move most of the time is very herky-jerky yeah it's very like please god don't make me do this don't make me bend that way yeah well and it's it's the same way that the humans who have parasites inside them move and you would think that if the parasite creatures had just generated these meat puppets for their own use from scratch, they would move a lot more fluidly than they do. Right. But on the other hand, we see the tractor beam just sort of generating a new Bryn layer by layer for her parasite to climb back into. So maybe they have generated the aliens for their own use. Why are they herky-jerky? Who knows? And if they can just generate people's bodies at will, why do they have to infest all of these people? Around? Why can't, I don't know. It's just, it, again, it raises a bunch of questions that don't necessarily have to be answered, but also... Well, I think the reason that it's, a, it, it's for me, that it's a wrinkle that refuses to be ironed out is this issue of mercy because any it is it is a parasite it is you know depicted that way coded that way it's it's just this thing that is is mindlessly propagating itself we're given every indication that it's like almost a it doesn't look like something that is capable of letting anyone off the hook if the parasites are the ones pulling the levers upstairs, the ones calling the shots behind those those big Area 51 eyes, then everything just kind of falls apart. And, and, and that would all be solved if she had just, you know, like we've been saying, flown under the radar, but that's not how they chose to play it. Yeah. It's like if, it's like if COVID decided to cut you some slack because you'd been having a tough year already. You know, it's like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't think that way. It can't even be said to think. You right. know, it's it, that that so it's it that that was just kind of risable. Anyway, I keep cutting you off. No, it's it's at the end of the day, it just it's raising a bunch of questions that I know I've just spent ten or twelve minutes trying to chew through them. So clearly, I find them interesting to to some extent, but are fundamentally not that interesting. I guess <laughs> I'm just parsing them because that's what I do. I pick at problems that kind of rankle in my brain until. I can either figure them out or I give up, but I'm not enjoying asking these questions. They're not like thought provoking no, in like, a fun it's like, way. It's like picking at a hangnail. You know, you feel <laughs> you feel the compulsion, but it's it's sort of, sort of a maladaptive coping mechanism. And yeah. you, you sort of wish you could just stop. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. 
So for me, the, the juiciest morsels here are mostly to do with that ending. I think it's, 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 it's kind of hilarious that she is as happy as she is. And that is kind of, there's potential for brilliance there. It's really a scathing condemnation of her as a person. You yeah. know, that there's just this hollowness to her, that she's happy with this horrible simulacrum. I said before, you know, why is she teaching herself to dance this way rather than pulling up a YouTube tutorial? It seems very traditional, very Betty Draper. What I stopped myself from saying, what I tabled until after the break, is that if I, it had been me taking a pass at this script, I would have planted a couple more red flags early on. And this might have necessitated dispensing with the gimmick of the silence. But then again, it, it might not have. I think that the ending is funniest and also kind of the most disturbing if she is established to be near the beginning of the movie like a trad wife influencer, you know, <laughs> where it was like, you know, okay. she's like make, making her own bread from scratch, you know, and there's just kind of some kind of a platform where she's espousing these kind of traditionalist values, these conservative values, and then the aliens quite by happenstance deliver her into this paradise that no healthy person would be happy with but which she is thrilled by you know which is partly a trauma thing because she was ostracized she was being treated like a pariah and so maybe it's a, an improvement in that sense but you know it's like uh, joe pantoliano talking about how good the steak tastes <laughs> ignorance is bliss yeah <laughs> precisely Except she's not ignorant, and that's what makes the ending, in theory, disquieting and also hilarious. That she's just on board with it, spinning around, dancing hither and yon. When she's getting dolled up before she goes out dancing, she looks like a Disney princess. You expect a cartoon bird to alight on her wrist. It's very... she's got these kind of willowy arms and this body language... That's very much, I'm doing crowd work at Disneyland, you know, I'm dressed up as <laughs> Jasmine or whoever. When, when she's running from the aliens, uh, chronically throughout the movie, I kept thinking of this. She kept acting like Snow White running through the spooky forest. Hmm. Like the, the hands okay. up by yeah. the face, kind of like, like, like tree limbs are grabbing at her, like <gasps> that kind of thing. Except she doesn't even make that much noise. She produces... No. You know, it's not even that she doesn't talk. She acts like a deaf mute, which I don't think she's meant to be. Even the, no. the, the protagonist in Hush had more grunting and groaning, as I remember it, than we get here. At one point, she steps on a noisy floorboard that creaks underfoot. And the way that she winces, you know, you would think that it was like the scene in A Quiet Place where a nail has just gone into her foot, you know, but she has to be quiet or she'll be killed. You know, mm -hmm. it's it, it's that kind of wince just because she stepped on a creaky floorboard. And the whole performance is like that. And it's kind of appealing because it is so kind of cartoonish in a way. But it also, it's appealing in a very kind of showy, superficial way, which makes her ultimately being absorbed into this pod people society kind of fitting because she's been acting like a Stepford wife the whole movie. And maybe that's emblematic of some kind of spiritual sickness, you know, that, that and, and the movie could have could have maybe said something kind of pointed about that, about her performing femininity with her every gesture 
in this very over-the-top sort of stylized way. I don't think it's trying to do that. I think that it's just the performance. And, you know, she might have been directed to do it this way, you know, Lillian Gish, Mary Pickford kind of style. But it seemed to me like it might have been coming from a place of insecurity. Like, you, you take an actor's voice away, and there's a panic response somewhere inside where they think, I'm not doing enough, people are going to get bored of me. You right. Know, and, so they, and so they start overcompensating. That was the stink of that suspicion uh, was in my nostrils the entire movie. It's kind of the opposite of a Robert Redford in All is Lost situation. Right, yeah, where he's just perfectly naturalistic. This is anything but. Yeah. So make her a trad wipe and all of a sudden everything clicks into place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the ending and the the performance, the physical performance that she's giving uh, suddenly makes much more sense to me on just a scene-by-scene -scene basis. So to give a little bit of context for the writer-director of this film, his name is Brian Duffield. He wrote The Babysitter from 2017, the yeah. sequel to which we reviewed, I think yeah. that was episode 60. So it's Ice, been... Ice Baby. <laughs> right doesn't look like he actually had a hand directly in the script for the sequel his credit is just based on characters created by so yeah. first babysitter is pretty pretty decent it's all right it's definitely better than the sequel so it's it's good that he didn't have his hand in that but it's also i think just all right he apparently also has a screenplay and story credit on underwater which i think i liked a little better than the babysitter and which we also reviewed, incidentally. Uh -huh. And I don't know uh, the degree to which he had any creative involvement, but he also produced Cocaine Bear. Unseen by yours truly. I've seen Underwater and Babysitter, of course, and uh, I think they're both adequate. I, for, from where I'm sitting, he's got like an unbroken track record of like six out of tens. It's, he's, 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 he's extremely consistent, if nothing else. I didn't really care too much for Cocaine Bear. Uh, I would definitely put it closer to the, the 5 out of 10 uh -huh. scale, and I think I would inch Babysitter in that direction. Uh, but yeah, overall, it's not like this is either a big leap forward or a big step down for this guy. I think it more or less fits into his paradigm. And again, there's stuff about this movie that I want to like, more than I do. The ending, like we've talked about already, I do like the idea that in a very sick way, the ending is exactly what Bryn wanted, and that's quite the indictment. Well, and it, it retroactively, what it says about her as a person makes her retroactively so much more interesting than she is in practice, you know, minute to minute as the movie is playing. And I think it, it actually... I'm talking myself into liking the ending more because while it was happening, it was kind of a head scratcher and kind of the sudden you have now arrived in Pleasantville, population 506 or what, you know, it's, it's it, 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 you're all of a sudden the movie on a dime just turns into this whole other animal. And it kind of didn't work for me at all while I was watching it, but there's just so much it kind of half does and so much that it could have done that I am after the fact kind of feeling a, th a certain thrill just talking about it that I didn't actually feel, you know, <laughs> as the credits were rolling and, and shortly beforehand. Yeah, well, it, but again, I can I will just never get past the other half of it, which is 
the aliens have built her a Potemkin village. This is gibberish. Why would they do this? They're trying, presumably, to colonize the planet or whatever. Yeah, or, I mean, milk you, you it just, for its resource. Why? What is what is the motive here? You just have to you have to ingest the spaghetti parasite and believe that you're in an alternate reality where she is just a lone survivor, uh, Veronica Cartwright type. Even if the movie had all of the other problems that it has, if you just fixed that one thing and made her a tramp wife. <laughs> I would I would be, you know, sing, singing its praises. I like how if I took a spaghetti monster to the esophagus, it still wouldn't put me in a perfect world. It would just get this movie closer to like a 7.5 rather than a 6 even or yeah. you know or whatever it is, you know. My pessimistic ass would resist the fucking dopamine toxins, you know, flooding my system. <laughs> Well, it's like the architect says, the first Matrix was a paradise, and people couldn't hang. People just died. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, on to recommendations. Do check out that Superman comic that I mentioned. It's rather short. And do check out an episode of The Twilight Zone, which I imagine must have been an inspiration when the filmmakers were contemplating this project. It's called The Invaders. I believe it stars Agnes Moorhead. She is a rural woman, a kind of semi-feral woman, honestly, living alone in a shack, and her home is invaded by these diminutive little, not even knee-high aliens, these, these tiny men from space. So it's her fighting with pots and pans against these aliens who are considerably smaller than she is, but more technologically advanced, and the whole episode plays out in silence. She, you know, groans in pain periodically but that's about it and there's a twist natch it's the twilight zone and the twist is a little easy to see coming if you've seen your fair share of the twilight zone but it's a decent enough twist and a good episode and i think it's one of the half hour ones uh, all the episodes outside of season four were kind of short and sweet and to the point and i believe mm -hmm. this is one of those so it uh doesn't have the pacing problems that no one will save you has and the gimmick does not wear out its welcome like it does in a feature film so i think that episode is called the invaders what else i also liked the vast of night which i don't think we did an episode on because it's not a horror movie per se but no, it's about we watched it but we didn't do an episode it's set in the 50s and uh it's got that you know gee whiz shucks golly kind of thing to it the characters are <laughs> extremely verbose so it's the, yes. the exact opposite of this movie in that regard which is critical and their verbosity is is almost fatiguing after but it's not as fatiguing as the silence is here at least in my estimation and because it is set in the 50s it can do that kind of pleasantville thing that this movie tries to do right at the 11th hour without you kind of going come again <laughs> uh right. so I, I i'm a fan of that movie and i am a fan of a movie that i sought out after we reviewed thanksgiving and i don't remember if any of this okay. happened on mike afterward you mentioned that you were you'd googled as i as did i thanksgiving horror movies and we had both hit upon independently at the same time this movie called Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, my ears perked up right away because I recognized the director. He made a movie called The McPherson Tape, I think it's called, in the 80s, which is a uh, it's post-cannibal holocaust, but is nonetheless a very early found footage horror movie about a family who's convened for, I mean, I guess it's Thanksgiving, otherwise it wouldn't be showing up on those listicles. And an alien saucer touches down, you know, in the woods behind their house and they have to batten down the hatches. And uh, it creates a, a kind of incredible level of verisimilitude for a pre-Blair Witch found footage horror movie. I mean, it's it's in the upper echelons of found footage for me, just in terms of looking plausible and not in terms of the special effects so much although those are wisely kept to the margins but just in terms of the performances and people's behavior and how people behave in stressful situations where they kind of can't believe what they're seeing and you know the family dynamics it's not documentary realism because i don't think any horror movie is but it is impressive i was impressed by it so the other one the one that i'm actually recommending because i watched it more recently alien abduction etc is basically a remake of McPherson tape, exact same scenario, many of the same beats. They try to modernize it for the 90s slightly, or just mix it up a little by introducing this guess who's coming to dinner subplot where one of the, <laughs> where like the, the sister has brought a black guy to Thanksgiving and uh, some of the brothers aren't too keen on that. Uh, mm. But that's not a huge, there's a, like a little bit of kind of wannabe George Romero racial tension that comes into it as a result of that and that's not good or bad i found it differentiates it from the earlier movie and keeps it just from feeling like a carbon copy so i guess in that sense it's a good thing i like both of those movies they're both pre-blair witch although alien abduction comes in right on the i think it came out in 1998 so right before the big found footage boom it's nominally a Thanksgiving horror movie, so I I I, I, just, I did my homework after we <laughs> after we wrapped on the Thanksgiving episode of the Eli Roth movie. So right. I thought I'd just give that one a shout out. That's that I think. So what is that for the man who has everything? Alien abduction, the invaders. Oh, and Vast of Night. That should yes. give you plenty to chew on. So I'm just going to give kind of a grab bag of movies that have mostly already come up referenced during the course of the episode. If you haven't, check out M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Mm-hmm. It's an alien invasion movie that gets a bit of a bad rap because of what is dubbed the Shyamalan twist, which I think is a stupid thing to get bent out of shape about. Generally, I think it's it's a good movie. I am inclined to agree. The uh, he's he's so bad with precocious kids a lot of the time. But my favorite line of dialogue that he's ever put in a kid's mouth is, it, "It's something like, uh, I saw a monster outside my window. Can I have a glass of water?" You know, this kid has come <laughs> to his parents' bedroom to wake them up in the middle of the night. I saw a monster. Also, I'm thirsty. <laughs> These <laughs> both yeah. equally pressing. And not very pressing at that. Kid is just taking it in stride. Whole movie is full of nice touches like that. I like when Joaquin Phoenix is in the closet. I think he's sequestered himself with the TV because he doesn't want to scare the younger siblings. Right. uh, Because there's alien coverage happening on the news. And there's camcorder footage of like a quinceanera or something. Or like like a, a birthday down Mexico way. People are crowding around and blocking the shot, and he starts going, Move, children, vominos! 
it's, yeah it's a really funny movie it's a, it's 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 a, it's underrated i think a little yeah. underrated so uh signs is good we referenced both body snatchers 56 and body snatchers 78 for different reasons for those of you who know anything about either or both of those movies they're very different but both very good in different ways despite having the same central premise so both worth checking out if for whatever reason you haven't if you want to watch something bad (laughs) that has a similar premise to this you can go back to the subject of our episode i believe 85 the film assimilate i thought of assimilate once or twice watching this and it's it's not a flattering comparison i mean i mean it's not it is a flattering comparison in that no one will save you looks good in comparison but if you think of assimilate at all then that's the a bad that sign that yeah it's been it's been tarnished uh, <laughs> by association and not a recommendation per se but i just like to take this opportunity to say that the alien parasites made me think of anamorphs yes the the the, the, the yurks the yurks that's right yeah the, the i brain. have brain slugs that take yeah. over people's bodies yeah. and that's I, those they were the enemy they were the big I, bad uh, that's right and they were pitiless they were without compassion <laughs> crucially <laughs> they wouldn't have cut Bryn a break or no. made her her own little happy village no and i am something of an anamorphs super fan even though i couldn't remember the name of the <laughs> main parasitic menace uh, right. But the th- and I almost brought this up earlier in the episode because we talked about well maybe they just colonized the gray aliens first and they're using them as their meat puppets. They don't look like a species where evil slugs from outer space would think like we are going to brainjack these guys because they're the perfect warriors. You know? <laughs> right. Kind of, they're 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 normal gray aliens that have been stretched like taffy some of the time, but not even all of the time. Right. I guess they're they have they have telekinesis powers, so that would make them appealing for combat. But like in in Animorphs, all of the alien races that the have already forgotten the Yurks, I think, have enslaved, yes. are extremely formidable. You know, they're like horse scorpions. <laughs> <laughs> the something Bajir, the like Hork Bajir or something. Or no, I might be thinking. There's also these like horrible bird beaked velociraptor looking things that have like razor sharp spines coming out of their elbows yeah um oh, andalites that's what the the horse scorpions are called if i'm not mistaken it's all coming back to me i have a humiliating elementary school memory of uh i was made fun of for reading animorphs first of all i started when you before you went out for recess after recess was deer time drop everything and read or as my illiterate classmates called it, drop everything and run. It was obviously the highlight of my day. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started leaving my Animorphs books covered down uh, because once I overheard some kids making fun of me for reading Animorphs and they had more material to furnish their insults if if it was cover up because they could see what the animal du jour was, a dolphin or what have you. 
So it's just, you know, just a wall of text on the back. So I would, I would leave the book cover down on my desk before we went out for a recess. And you had to put a book on your desk because you were meant to come back in and immediately pick it up for dear time. So that's, that's, that's the sub memory, the actual humiliation that I wanted to talk about, <laughs> which I have not thought about. You know, that was just a little aperitif. Well, before you get to it, I just, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around Animorphs being a thing that kids would make fun of you for reading. I just, In third was... grade. I know that this is a third grade memory because I, because I remember the classroom. I don't remember that being singled out as like a particularly nerdy thing for kids our age to be reading at that time. It's like, okay, no, I mean, if, I, if I you wanted to be was... called a nerd for reading, that's one thing, but that specifically, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't think it was an especially uncool property to be into. I just think that it was, you know, I mean, kids will latch onto anything. Sure, vicious little sure. Brutes. I was riding the bus home once. There was this, this kid who lived on my street who i was not friends with he was cooler than i was and uh <laughs> he sat next to me which was unusual and i was i was reading an animorphs book and it was the cover always shows their horrifying metamorphosis <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the the middle animorph was a funny meme you know some 10 years ago <laughs> the, the, like mid transformation yeah cronenbergian kind of horror of it is pretty funny but one of the books features them transforming into the evil alien slugs in order to infiltrate their headquarters or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was very novel for me as a fan of the series. Like, oh, they're not just turning into a fucking rhinoceros or whatever. They're turning into something extraterrestrial, uh, something specific to the lore of the series. And this kid who lived on my street, and this couldn't have been any later than fourth grade or so, asked me in a kind of patronizing but maybe well-intentioned way you could tell that he was just humoring me even as a kid i could see that he was in this very kind of daddish feigning interest way he was like oh so what do they turn into this time <laughs> <laughs> and i and i was like uh, have you ever heard of and i, I like tr dramatically turned the book around so used was I to hiding the covers <laughs> at this point. And uh, have you ever heard of a, you know, and I like showed him the cover and he was like, uh, what? He just, I assume he just thought it was a snail, you know, because it doesn't, <laughs> and I was like trying to explain to him why this was cool. And then it just tapered, you know, my enthusiasm went off a cliff immediately. And I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so. Maybe I would also be happier with the pod people in the final analysis. <laughs> Perhaps. <I think> that's... <laughs> that's the conclusion I've arrived at. Okay. <laughs> well, now that Matt has been dropped off side by side with Bryn in the, yeah. uh, the Yerkes that's, that's... Potemkin village... That's the thing I'm journaling about in my trauma <laughs> diary. I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive myself. <laughs> I didn't brain anyone with a rock, but it was almost as bad. Uh, I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Jarndaisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you next time. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from No One Will Save You official trailer, uploaded by 20th Century Studios. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, March 3rd, and we will be discussing the prehistoric survival horror film, Out of Darkness. See you then.